0: Well, I'm excited to kick off our brand new series called Through the Eyes of a Lion. And it's based off the book called Through the Eyes of a Lion by Pastor Levi Lusco. And it's all about him and his family's journey through tragic loss. Uh, they, they lost their second eldest daughter to tragically an asthma attack. And it, it really talks about um, faith in the presence of overwhelming circumstances. And so it's just my prayer this week as, and the following weeks as we explore this series that wherever you're at in your season of life, just that you would know that you're not alone and that there is a God who meets you in your pain and wants to walk alongside of you through that. I'm just gonna pray for us before we begin. If you bow your heads and close your eyes with me, God, thank you for today. I pray that your word would be made known today in everything I say and everything you do, Jesus. We pray this in your name, amen. My wife and I were looking at old honeymoon photos from seven years ago this week, and we were sorting through because it kind of had to do with the sermon today, and Hannah came across this photo that really kind of sums up uh, who we were and are, you know, especially at that point in our lives. It's an incredibly flattering photo, and I'm really excited to share it with you at uh, at her ask. So, JP, go ahead and put that up. You can't really unsee that double chin <laughs> or those eyebrows. But anyways, this was, uh, this was us on our honeymoon. This is like one of our first selfies ever as a married couple. And when we had the opportunity to to pick what we wanted to do for a honeymoon, you know, my parents went to Aruba. I know uh, Courtney and Brady, who just got married, went to Florida. There's kind of, I think a lot of us have gone on like tropical honeymoons. But for Hannah and I, we decided to borrow my grandpa's car and drive all across the western half of the United States. So we started in Washington and we drove down through California and over to Colorado back up to Washington and we saw as many states and as many cities and national parks as we possibly could. It was just, it was so much fun, uh, so many good memories from that. But one of my favorite places, and this is where that photo was taken from, was a place called Crater Lake National Park in Oregon. And we knew it was like way out of the way for us to get there, but we were determined to go see this lake. And so we, we made our plans and we set out and you know this was before we had GPS on our cell phones we had to just use a Garmin and Garmin never knew there was traffic so we're we're like we're like oh this is going to be a 10 hour trip this is perfect it'll put us there right before sunset and as the sun's going down we'll set up our tent campsite and we'll eat dinner together and we'll get to see the majesty of the lake but as many of you know 10 hours on a road trip usually turns into 14 or 15 And I remember the last few hours well, because as it got darker, I got grumpier and more mean. And I just wanted to be out of that car at that point. And I just, I I felt our plans kind of like slipping through our fingers, like it wasn't going to play out the way we thought it would. And we get there and we get to the tent site and there was snow on the ground. So obviously we're not going to tent camp in snow. So we made the next best logical decision and we pulled up our car to the edge of the crater and decided to sleep there for the night. And that's where we took the photo and despite my happy demeanor, I was still very grumpy. Because call me weird, I like to sleep in beds. I don't know if that's a weird thing. So we ended up spending close to 20 plus hours in the car and I remember around like 4 or 5 a.m., the darkest moment. You know, you can just see shapes and shadows. You can't really see the lake in front of you. I was like, was any of this worth it? Like we could have just driven down the coast instead of going out here. All our plans fell apart. Like did did we really need to even do this? Is, is this going to be worth it in the morning? And we woke up around 6.30 to the sunset. And, and uh, I want to show the picture here. This was our view from our car. Just beautiful, right? And, and all of the pain and the discomfort of sleeping in the car and the grumpiness just kind of wash away in light of that beautiful view. And as beautiful as it was and as great as that picture is, it still wasn't without a difficult time getting there and hardship and obstacles that we faced. And I wonder how many people here today have been in situations like that. Not necessarily where you've gone on a honeymoon and slept in your car. If you have, I'd love to hear your story. But those moments where like, you've made plans for things and then they start to fall through or, or things just aren't turning out they thought you would, or, or you're just hitting like obstacle after obstacle. You, you thought that trip was going to be 10 hours, it turned into 14 hours. Or, or you thought that relationship with your kids was going to be that way, and it just it turned out that way. I think for a lot of us, we go through these seasons where it's, it's in relationships, or, or maybe it's in, in marriage, or it's in illness, or the loss of a loved one where we're we're just in this dark season and we're like, man, is any of this worth it? What's going to be there on the other side? And I'm, I'm sure that there are people here today who you've been in seasons like that. There are people here today who are in seasons like that. And there are people on the other side who are going to go into seasons like that. And to quote Lisa Turkers, I know that doesn't sound positive, but I'm positive about it. We are all in, are going to be, or have been in these dark seasons where we can't see the other side, and we don't know if it's even worth it to walk through that pain and that hardship and that oppression. And maybe you're like me, where you go through those times and you feel alone, not just in relation to other people, but in relation to God. Lucky for us, we're not the first people to struggle with this, The Apostle Paul was all too familiar with those dark seasons and those painful circumstances And we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. You can open up your Bible to that. Um, I want to set up a little bit of context because anytime you read the Bible, you should look at the context. It just helps you see it in light of what it's supposed to, who who it's talking to, who's writing it, um, the time period in which it's written. And 2 Corinthians is, is no exception. It's a letter written from the Apostle Paul to a church plant in the city of Corinth. And you see this a lot in the New Testament. You know, the same thing in the book of Romans. It's it's a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome that he planted. And he's giving them instruction on how to live godly lives. Because they don't have the Bible at that point. Christianity is brand new. And he's writing to the city that he has a rich history with. If we go back and you look at the context, Paul had spent 18 months in the city of Corinth. He had moved there in hopes of planting a church. There were no churches there. In fact, it was this multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious place. And if, if you could kind of sum it up in a building or a spot, it would be their, their elaborate and illustrious temple of Aphrodite. And it was this, just modern. I mean, it was a, a wonder. It was incredible looking. It boasted over 1,000 temple prostitutes. That represents well the culture that Paul is walking into, a culture that is broken, a culture that is struggling, and a culture that is confused. And so it's in this culture that paul decides that he's going to plant this church and so he works as a tent maker meaning he makes tents and he sells them it's kind of like when hannah and i moved to nashville i waited tables she worked as a tutor to kids that paid the bills for us while we pursued music on the side same type of thing paul is putting money in his pocket paying the bills with the tent making job and he's planting this church and as he plants this church 18 months down the line he realizes he's got the right people in place they're in a good position and he's ready to move on to the next city and plant another church there so Paul leaves and he corresponds through 1st and 2nd Corinthians via snail mail to instruct them on what it means to live a godly life at some point during this time period a group of missionaries comes in to Corinth and Paul describes their teaching as a false gospel. Basically, whatever their teaching does not line up with who Jesus says he is. And, and we don't know like their full message, but if we look later on in the text, um, we can kind of sum it up this way. This is what the IVP Bible Commentary says. It says, It is clear from the context that these intruders put great stock in things like outward show of the Spirit, oratorical ability and heritage, Signs, wonders, and miracles are all things that mark an apostle. Visions and revelations are grounds for boasting. Eloquent speech and the proper heritage are sources of pride, which, if you know anything about Paul, is in stark contrast to who Paul is. And he admits early on that he's no trained speaker, he's not this great orator who, who has grown up learning how to speak in public. On top of that, he's just a tent maker. He has barely enough money to get by. He, he's not showy by any outward standards. And his name, when we translate it to English, means small or humble. Paul was unimpressive by the standards of the missionaries. And then top it all off, he's this man of, of great suffering. We, we read that he's been in prison. He's been beaten with, with rods. He's been stoned. He's been, n- not like that, like he's... I've got to watch the way I say things. Like people saw some of you give me a look like, yeah, okay. Watch what you, all right. He's been, he's had rocks thrown at him trying to kill him. That's what we'll call it. He's been shipwrecked. He's had, uh, he's gone nights and days without food and without clothing. Like Paul has suffered greatly for the gospel. And in comparison to these missionaries, like He's got nothing to show like they do. They come in, they boast of their greatness, of their abilities, of their gifts. And at some point during, this, during them coming in, they've convinced some of the Corinthians that Paul's suffering and the pain he's gone through and, and the unimpressiveness of who he is is proof that he's not a spirit-filled apostle of Jesus In other words, the pain that he's gone through is proof that God is not with him. It disqualifies him from having a relationship with Jesus. But Paul has something to say about that. He says, "What we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I want to pause there because when we think of jars of clay, maybe you think of a decoration on your shelf at home or on your coffee table but in their culture a jar of clay was was something they used to hide treasures or or sacred texts or um, just for example the Dead Sea Scrolls which uh, hold some of the oldest of our gospel manuscripts were found in jars like this and the jars sometimes they were ornate sometimes they were decorated sometimes they were just plain and old and cracked but they all had one thing in common they were all fragile and easily broken. And I wonder how many people here today feel a little bit like that clay jar. Fragile, and easily broken, and helpless. And maybe you've heard those voices of Paul's opponent ring in your ears before, that the pain that you're going through, and the suffering, and the obstacles you're facing is proof that God is not with you. And bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are transient, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. These bodies we live in, these broken vessels, are are much like the jars of clay, that, that they're easily broken, that they're They're easily cracked and wounded. But Paul's message is in stark contrast to his opponents. His opponents are saying, yeah, that's proof that God is not with you. That is proof that God is not moving through you. But Paul has a different opinion. He says, no, the fact that I'm going through so much is not proof that God is not with me. It's proof that God is moving through me. And it's proof that God is preparing me for an eternal glory. But I fear that too many of us here today, we we look at ourselves and our our circumstances and and the pain and the hardship as inconsequential and as as proof that God is not with us. And, And let's just be honest, when you're in that season and you look in front of you and you don't see God moving, it's hard sometimes to believe that God is moving. And when you don't feel God's presence or you don't see God actively in your life, it's hard to believe that he's actively in your life. But Paul saw from a different perspective. He, he didn't let other people's opinions inform what he thought about his circumstances. He let the truth of who Jesus was inform how he viewed his circumstances. He knew who Jesus was and what Jesus stood for. He knew that the signs and the miracles and the wonders that the opponents were speaking of, yeah, those things are, are important. Those were a part of Jesus' life, but they were not the end-all, be-all. The end-all, be-all, the, the scandal of the cross is that Jesus used, uses the vulnerable and the weak and the broken and death itself to bring about new life. And we can look at Jesus' life and, and we can see that. When he talks in Matthew, he doesn't say blessed are the rich because they're going to get more stuff when they get to heaven. He doesn't say blessed are the happy because you're too blessed to be stressed. He, he, he doesn't say the successful will be more successful. He says this in Matthew. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Jesus, he doesn't just say this, he lives this out. You know, when Jesus came to earth, he he didn't come with a red carpet laid out for him. He didn't come to earth with an entourage proclaiming his greatness and and putting him on a throne. He came born to a virgin 14-year-old in a barn. He was born in the most vulnerable, weak way possible. And when Jesus actually went about his ministry. He didn't hang out with the politicians or the who's who of the day to boost his influence or his reputation. He hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors and fishermen. He hung out with the lowest of society. He chose the broken. And when Jesus died, he didn't set up this army or, or this vast mar- monarchy to overthrow the oppressive Roman government. He let that very Roman government kill him in one of the most humiliating broken ways possible. And Jesus was buried in the ground and three days later rose again and through death Jesus brought new life. To quote my favorite band Switchfoot, the wound is where the light shines through. That place of brokenness, that place of hardship, that place of obstacles may be the very place that God is moving in your life to prepare you for something greater than you could ever imagine. The wound is where the light shines through. And Paul knew this, which is why he's able to say that shipwreck, that imprisonment, that getting stones thrown at me, those are momentary afflictions. Those are nothing in the the grand scheme of eternity, which means this. If we're able to see through Paul's eyes, if we're able to see with that perspective that in your pain and your hardship and your suffering, God is closer than you could ever imagine because he's not a God who imposes suffering. He's a God who endures suffering. The wound is where the light shines through. The problem is, it's all too easy to see that pain and that despair in front of us, isn't it? It's hard to to see those things and not see the the bigger picture. If you uh, if you ever see me out in public and my clothes aren't matching, there's a good reason for it. I uh, I was born with what's called color deficiency. A lot of people have it. It's it's not really uncommon, but basically it means that um, I can't tell the difference between some colors. So like. For some people, it's reds and greens, other people, it's blues and yellows. Mine is red and green, so sometimes grass looks kind of red, sometimes a red shirt looks kind of green. I know it's weird, doesn't make a lot of sense. I can tell the difference between a red light and a green light, though, so don't be scared while I'm driving. <laughs> and at the off chance that they're, like, not vertical but like this, I got my wife next to me yelling at me when I'm running through the, the red light. I found that when Hannah came into my life, I began to dress significantly better because when I would put on a new outfit that I, that I wasn't sure if it, if it matched or if the jeans went with the shirt or the socks went together, I could go to Hannah and, and what I couldn't see because of just the deficiency I was born with, she could see with fresh, full eyes. She could see the full picture in the full color spectrum and tell me when my socks were clashing with my shirt. I, I think that in much the same way that I was born with color deficiency, that we are born with faith deficiency. We're born with this inability to see the entire picture of what God is doing. And so it's so important, it's so vital that we get that perspective, that eternal perspective through the eyes of a lion, that that we come to God and we let him inform us as to what our circumstances mean and what the bigger picture of eternity actually represents. Because here's the thing, when you see just what's right in front of you, when you see what's happening right before your very eyes, it's only a matter of time before you lose hope. Because if you just see the, the hopelessness, if you just see the brokenness, the hardship, the pain in this world, it's a matter of time before you lose hope. And, and there's this, this argument that's similar to the opponents in Paul's day that, that's kind of pervasive in our day today, that, that the pain and the suffering that we see in the world is proof that God's not with us. In fact, some people will say it's proof that God does not exist at all that your suffering and pain is an indication that He never was present or never will be present and if you if you adopt that mindset first off we 're glad you're here. Um, second off, if you adopt that mindset, that means that you were born without any purpose that you were just born as an accident, it was just a random chance of events that unfolded that led you to this day, and you're just a speck of dust in in the grand scheme of eternity. And that means that your suffering, that that pain you go through, is nothing but random chance and irredeemable events. It's hopeless. On the other side, though, Paul looks at those moments and that pain, not as proof that God is not with us, but that pr- proof that God endures pain and suffering with us and for us. Tim Keller lays this out really well. He says this, Christianity alone among the world religions claims that God became uniquely and fully human in Jesus Christ and therefore knows firsthand rejection, loneliness, poverty, bereavement, torture, and imprisonment. On the cross, he went beyond even the worst human suffering and experienced cosmic rejection and pain that exceeds ours as infinitely as his knowledge and power exceeds ours. In his death, God suffers in love, identifying with the abandoned and God-forsaken. So if we embrace the Christian teaching that Jesus is God and that he went to the cross then we have deep consolation and strength to face the brutal realities of life on earth. We can know that God is truly Emmanuel, God with us, even in our worst sufferings. The wound is where the light shines through. That pain And that brokenness and that disappointment and that setback is the very place where God can move in you and through you. Because we serve a God who's in the business of raising the dead, of bringing new life to dead valleys. We serve a God who's in the business of bringing hope to the hopeless. And though we can't see the full picture right now, God promises that one day everything will be made new that the hopeless will have hope, that every injustice will be brought to justice, that every wrong will be made right. Revelation 21, four through five says this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They uh, They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything, everything new. But to see with faith, to see through the eyes of a lion and and to see the way God sees, we need to constantly correct our nearsightedness. It's much in the same way that we need to put glasses on so that we can correct our nearsightedness. We need to constantly go to the word of God see what God says about our circumstances and about his plans for us for the future. You need to constantly be here in community with people more than just once a month. You need to come out and invest in a community who wants to walk beside you and guide you along this process. And that's why I love Sea Road because it's not a bunch of people who act like we have everything together or pretend that once you become a Christian, your life gets perfect. It's a group of people who walk side by side in community and family together together, lifting each other up. And to see that long view, to correct your nearsightedness, you need to be around those type of people. And thirdly, like Pastor Aaron said last week, you need to look God in the eyes. You need to have conversation with God. You need to constantly go to him and let him inform you on what he sees in the grand scheme of eternity. Because what looks dead, what looks broken, what looks like despair and hopelessness may be the very place where God can bring new life. I mean, can you imagine how that would change the way we live our lives if we were able to adopt that mindset can can you imagine if we were able to look at those circumstances in life that wouldn't just affect the way we we viewed hardship and brokenness and pain like that would affect the way we made job decisions and the way we raised our family and who our family spent their time around and and where we would go in life and, and where we would move, that mindset, that correcting that nearsightedness would have the potential to completely transform the way you see other people, yourself, and the world around you. One of my other favorite places we went to on our honeymoon was Death Valley National Park. I don't know why. I shared this with, with our youth about a year ago. You know, it's, its average temperature there is 47 degrees Celsius. Its average rainfall during a year is about two inches. There's hardly any plant life, hardly any animal life. By all accounts, this is a valley of death. And for years, people have visited it just to see what a wasteland it is and, and how how dead it actually is and experience that. A speaker at a camp named Matt DePrez told me about this, though. But in 2005, it began to rain a little bit more than usual, just, just another inch or two. It began to rain over this valley of death, and out of the ground sprouted wildflowers. And they completely covered the entire valley. They transformed the valley from this valley of death into a valley of life. And, and scientists flew from all over the world to witness this. And what they realized is that Death Valley wasn't actually dead. That it was just lying dormant. There are some of you today who you are going through hopeless situations. And you are going through situations that look irredeemable. And, and they look like there's, there's, you're asking yourself, is this even worth it? This isn't what I planned for. And God's saying, in the, mo- in the driest valley, He can work a miracle. Where there is death, Jesus will bring new life. And that very that very hardship, that very oppression, that very obstacle you're facing may be the fertile soil that God is using to plant in new seeds of dependence and future glory beyond anything you can possibly comprehend. But we need to constantly fix our nearsightedness to see the bigger plan at work.